Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one God. For although there may be so, many so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful as your people for your word, which grounds us. It, it's what shows us who you are, your heart and your character and your nature and your love for us. And Father, we thank you that it is in your word that we see Christ revealed to us, the hope of glory, the one who extends his arms to us and says, come ye sinners, poor and needy. Lord, you invite us to come right now as we are, not to wait until we're better, but to come right now as we are to you, Jesus. And so Lord, as we come to this passage today, we even look at something that um, maybe, maybe feels very far removed from us, eating food offered to idols, Lord, would you show us Jesus? Father, would you lift up our heads that we might see Christ and send us out of here, worshiping you for the Savior that you are. We trust you, Lord. Would you teach us today, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, last summer, my family was gearing up for a very fun, relaxing, enjoyable vacation. Uh, we were going on vacation uh, with some family members, with my, uh, my wife's parents and my wife's sister and husband and, and their kids. There was, I think, 11 of us in total. And uh, really excited. We got a big house together. I was in the, in the, out in uh, Michigan. And we go, and we're enjoying, enjoying it. And, uh, but one of the things that happens when we first get there is my youngest daughter, who's two, she gets really sick. And uh, so, you know, we kind of deal with that uh, as a family, but then we kind of move along as she, as she gets a little bit better. Um, but as our vacation is going on, um, she seems to be fine, but then my, uh, my, my son comes down with a little bit of a sickness, and it's like, oh, this is weird. Um, and uh, so he gets sick one day, and, and about two hours later, um, another one of us gets sick, and uh, now we start to kind of look at each other and start to back away from each other a little bit, try to create a little bit of social distancing, which we've all got some experience in by now. Uh, 
And lo and behold, over, over the course of the next 12 hours, just one by one, each one of us would start falling. We would all start getting sick and literally falling. I mean, it was violent. It was a really bad virus that just swept its way through the house. I've always wondered what it would feel like to live in like a zombie apocalypse movie, and I experienced it in Michigan. My children are scarred when you say the word Michigan. No one wants to go there ever again, right? But it was, I mean, it was brutal. It was just like, you knew it was coming for you and there was nothing you can do. And just one by one, it took us out until eventually at one point, all but one of us were, had our own bowl. We were curled over onto the couch. It was just a bad scene, just a poor vacation, really a bummer. But at one point, I, uh, I went upstairs. The whole family was downstairs and I was just like, look, there's no room for me on the couch. I'm just going to go claim a bed and just, uh, just escape from reality. And um, so I'm, I'm, I'm literally upstairs at one point, curled in the fetal position, just in so much pain. And my wife is calling out to me from downstairs. She's like, Nick, please, we need you. Help us. Please, all of the kids are so sick. We need you. And I didn't move. I, all I wanted to say was, I can't. I am in, you don't understand. I'm in so much pain. And I didn't move. I was literally so inwardly bent that I couldn't be a dad. I couldn't be a husband. Meanwhile, somehow my wife has the superpower strength to be everything to everyone in that moment, but I could only be what I needed. I was so inwardly bent. All of us are like this. We are very inwardly bent and think most prominently of ourselves. Now, obviously, that's a very dramatic example But it's somewhat of a picture of what we are like in our lives. The most important thing to us is ourselves. It's my comfort. It's my freedom. It's my perspective, my feelings, my voice, my plans, my career, my body, my future. We are so bent in on ourselves to think most prominently, not of others, but of ourselves. Great theologian Martin Luther said that man is so curved in upon himself that he uses not only physical but even spiritual goods for his own purposes and in all things seeks only himself. That's the human condition. But the problem for the Christian is that we've been called into a life of not being bent inward but at all times being bent upward to the Lord and outward towards others. To prioritize building others up is part of the call of being a follower of Jesus. We are no longer lone rangers. We belong to Christ, but not just to Christ, but to Christ's family and his body. And because of that, we must build each other up. It's part of being a follower of Jesus. We must build each other up. In all things, we must be seeking not the puffing up of ourselves, but the building up of our brothers and sisters in Christ. All of this comes to the forefront in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 for the Apostle Paul as he starts to address a very specific issue within this church. I want us to understand what's happening here because when we hear the word food sacrifice to idols, we instantly are like, I have no idea what you're talking about. So let's get a little bit of context for what Paul is saying here because this is where it all is coming to the forefront here, this idea of needing to build each other up but being so inwardly focused that we can't do it. In every ancient Roman or Greek city, there was a tremendous amount of idol worship. 
That was just woven into the fabric of society. You go to any ancient Roman or Greek city today, you will see the ruins of several temples. Every city that you go to, it wasn't just one God, it was multiple. So you would have multiple temples in every city. The, the culture was, you never wanted to offend any one God, so you made sure that you were always pleasing all of the gods. This is one of the reasons why Christians were so culturally hated, is because they said, we believe in one God and one God only. And that meant that the, all the other gods would be offended and break, wreak havoc upon the society. And so in every city, there was temples to all different gods. Dionysus, who's the goddess of, of wine and entertainment, or Artemis, who's about hunting and fertility, or just all of these different gods. Apollos, Apollo, who would be about prophecy and healing. You would have a god to almost everything and a temple for them. And these were massive, elaborate temples. Brian, Brian and I got to go to Turkey uh, about a month ago and see some of these temples. They are intentionally built to be extremely intimidating. I mean, these things are 30, 50 foot high columns, as big as a football field built with pure marble. It is meant to very spiritually intimidate a society to say, this is who we worship. Don't offend these gods. Look at the power that they have. Look at the buildings that they dwell in compared to Christianity, which has no temple, no building, no dwelling place for God except for the people, the body of Christ. But it casts this shadow upon every city to say our gods are important, they're powerful, they're ornate, they're big, you better worship them. And that's exactly what happened. These temples became not just the place of religious worship, but the place of culture. This is just where you went to experience life with people in the city. There would be um, uh, celebrations that would happen there, both, both private and, and citywide. Any kind of city festival would take place at a temple. Private celebrations would, would happen at the temple. So you'd say, hey, I'm getting together for a private dinner to celebrate my new promotion. Come to the, come to the temple of, of, uh, of Dionysus and we're going we're gonna to worship and we're going to celebrate the way that the gods have provided for us. This was just a part of the regular rhythm of society. It's where entertainment would happen. It's where social connection would happen. It's where business relationships would happen. And every time you would go there, food was always involved. Food was always involved. And as the food was served, it was served in three portions. One portion would go to the God of that temple. The next portion would go to the table of the God, which is really for all of the, the temple workers within that temple, the priests, they would eat that food. And the rest of it would go to the, the worshipers, the, the people that came to celebrate and party. And the idea is, is that the God is present while we eat this food because this food is sacrificed in its honor. And because this is a largely non-Jewish city, almost everyone would have grown up doing this every day. This is just how you were raised. It was normal. You didn't bat an eye at it. In fact, many say that they were the basic restaurants of the ancient world. But now, many have become Christians. And they're faced with, what do we do now? This is what everyone does. This is how we connect with people. This is how we celebrate. This is what we do. There's, there's even a temple in, in all the Roman cities. There's a temple to the emperor of Rome where if you, don't, if you don't worship the emperor of Rome, now you're outcast socially. What, what are we supposed to do? This is a part of culture. It's a part of everyday life. They were faced with this dilemma. 
And after Paul left this city of Corinth, it seems that some have returned to these temples to start engaging in these meals and insisting on their right to do so. Asserting essentially this, well, theologically we know that the gods aren't real, right? They're just false idols. They're made with human hands. The gods aren't really real. Therefore, the food that we eat is not really being offered to anything that is actually real. So it's okay. We know that there's only one God, so we're free to do so. But there are others among them who Paul calls the weaker brothers, who maybe for whatever reason had a deeper entanglement with some of these idols or um, a, just a rougher past with, with worshiping these, these gods. Paul says those people are being led astray by you asserting your freedom. And by being led astray, he doesn't mean they're just offended. He means they're being led into sin. They're being destroyed by your example. And yet they're still saying, we have the freedom, we have the right to do this. And so Paul wants to speak to that. And he's going to do it for a few chapters. Eventually he lands at this place to tell them, you're not allowed to go to temples. Predominantly because to do so is actually to have fellowship with demons. And we're going to get there and talk about that and it's going to make us uncomfortable because we've got a lot of idolatry today. That's fellowship with the demonic. But it's not where he starts. He doesn't start by saying, he very easily could have started and said, hey, don't go visit temples because theologically, here's what you're doing. It's wrong. It's not where he starts. He starts with this. It's not loving. It's not loving your brother. It's destroying them. And I think Paul starts here very intentionally because he wants the church to prioritize building each other up. Even if it means giving up things that you're allowed to do. Even if it means giving up things that are right. He wants us to prioritize building each other up. So how can we do that? Because we need help. We're so inwardly bent. How can we do that? In order to build each other up, we're going to need three things this morning. I'm going to focus on the first one is this, right praise, right practice, and right passion. And also teach us a couple words that maybe we don't use every so often because I think that they're helpful. First one is this, in order to build each other up, we need right praise, which is also called orthodoxy. I'll throw it up on the screen so you can see it. There you go. Orthodoxy. It's a word that, this word ortho, we get that, you think of orthodontist, right? This, this idea of making straight or making right. So this is, this, is, uh, this is the idea of right praise. In order to build each other up, we actually do need good theology. We do need right understanding about who God is and what he's done and who we are if we're going to love each other, if we're going to build each other up. This whole situation in Corinth started with theology. That's where it started. The Corinthians claimed to be doing right theology as reason for their temple visits. Look at some of the things here together in this, in this chapter. Verse 4. He says, we, we know that, and you'll, you'll see this probably in quotes in your Bible, which is, um, as, we're, as we're translating this into the English, we're saying, we're, this is basically a, de a decision to say these were probably phrases that were being used by the Corinthians. All right, so this first one, an idol has no real existence. That's a theological truth. That's biblical. That's actually right. An idol doesn't have real existence. It's just an item made with human hands. Or there's another one. There is no God but one. Yes and amen. That's a biblical truth. God is the only true and living God. There is no one but him. They continue on in, in, in verse 6. 
Uh, Paul even uh, brings forth some, some theological truth. There is one God the Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ. These are bedrock theological truths for the Christian that we must cling to and are good. But what the Corinthians were doing is they were using those truths to puff themselves up. They were using those truths as a reason to not have to love people in their church. Thankfully, that never happens today. They were using theological truths to say, see, I'm free from having to love them because this is theologically true. Because there's a temptation to use knowledge and theology to puff ourselves up, to distance ourselves from others. They're essentially saying this, our knowledge gives us a pass to love you because all we're doing is practicing the freedoms that Christ has purchased for us. He's given us the knowledge that there's only one God. Therefore, we're, if that bothers you, if you can't get on board with that, if you can't understand that knowledge, if that causes you to stumble, that's your fault. We're the ones that actually know what's true. So the focus for them was, you need knowledge like us. Paul says, true knowledge leads to love. Not being puffed up. Look at what he says. He says, this knowledge of yours puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. And then look at the connection he makes with love. But if anyone, we would expect him to say knows God, but he says, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Orthodoxy is not just about right facts. It's about right praise. That's what that word means. It's about right praise. Because theology is not just about a set of beliefs. Theology is about a person. The goal of right theology is not to be filled with knowledge. It's not to be really smart. The goal of right theology is to see the true Jesus and worship him rightly. That's the purpose. So to have right theology, but for it to not lead into right praise and worship and following of Christ, it's actually bad theology. It's, it's incomplete. It has not reached its full effect. And so he's saying here in verses 2 and 3 that right theology isn't just about being really knowledgeable about God, which is what you think you are. You know all these truths. That's not real knowledge, even though that's your claim. It's about actually knowing it's not just knowing a bunch of things about him, it's actually knowing him, meaning true knowledge is cherishing the gospel. It's cherishing the gospel. God knows everybody, yes, because he's sovereign, he's created everyone, but the way that the Lord speaks about knowing humanity, he speaks about knowing his people in a different way. Maybe some of us are familiar with what Jesus had said will happen on the, on the last day when many come before him and say, Lord, Lord, did we not do all of these great things in your name? And what will Jesus say to some of them? He will say, depart from me. Why? Because I never knew you. 
You claim to have all of this knowledge, all of these good deeds, all of these right things that you've done, but the problem was is I didn't know you. We did not have relationship. You were not one of my own. How are we able to be known by God? Through the gospel, through the work of Christ. All right, what do we see in John chapter 10? What does Jesus say? I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus came to lay down his life for the sheep, for specific people that he knew he would call to salvation. So how are we known by God? It's through Christ laying down his life. And in that process, as we come to know Christ, he also knows us. It happens both ways. It's because the Lord has chosen to know us that we get access to know him. That's, that's salvation. That is actually right theology, is to be known by God and to know him. And when the Lord knows you, it's his way of saying, I love you. That's why he would tell his people in the Old Testament, I have known no other nation but you. That's expressing love. It's expressing promise and devotion. So he's saying here, you, you claim to have all this knowledge, which you're using to distance yourself, but you don't really have knowledge because if you did, you would love me. You, you would love the Lord and you would love what he loves, but instead you, you love your freedom and you love your knowledge and you love being puffed up and you love being able to have your own autonomy to do whatever you, it is, it is you want to do. That's not real knowledge. He's calling them to cherish, not simply knowing, but being known. Being known by the Lord. And when you cherish the gospel, you love the Lord. And when you love the Lord, it drives you to love others. And so without right theology, our love is empty. Because we don't, we don't know what it is. I don't know if you ever uh, had the distinct privilege of receiving a package in the mail and opening it up and the box is empty? Anybody ever have a stolen package like that before? I just heard about somebody that ordered um, a real nice camera, hundreds and hundreds of dollars, and it was delivered, and he opened the box, and it was literally empty. That would be so sad. You'd be so excited to receive something, and you open it, and it's literally, there's nothing there. There's no substance. When we try to love others without right theology about who God is and what love is, our love is empty. There's no, there's no substance to offer. We can't actually love Christ or love others without right theology. Because or else we're just leaning on our own definitions of what we think love is. But even if we had the right definition of love, we could see it, we don't have the power to live it out unless we're known by Christ. And so we actually do need to pursue right theology from Scripture. The work of theology is not just reserved from some theologians who like to go in a, in a closet and lock themselves in there and know a bunch of biblical languages and are just much smarter than all of us. Theology is the work of humanity. Everyone does theology. Everyone believes something about who God is. You either just believe it rightly or wrongly. We are to get it from the scriptures. 
And here's the thing about Jesus. When the scriptures reveal Jesus to us, our takeaway is not, wow, look how knowledgeable he is. Our takeaway is, wow, look at how loving he is. It is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Our takeaway is, wow, look at this Jesus who knows all my sin and all my shame, and yet he laid down his life for me. Look at what love with which he's loved me. That I could be called a child of God by his grace. When we see Jesus rightly from the scriptures, it shows us his love. We see a God who died to build us up. Right, look, look at what uh, 1 Thessalonians 5 says. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you're doing. You see the, the flow? Jesus Christ, in his love, right theology, that we would see him and praise him and worship him for the fact that he died for us. That he has not destined us for wrath, but for salvation that we would rightly praise him for that and worship him for that, and yet what's the next logical flow from that? That we would build one another up. Not that we would distance ourselves from one another. We need to gaze upon Jesus and rightly praise him until it moves us to right practice, which we can call orthopraxy, to stay consistent. Right practice. We don't just need right praise. We need right practice. You see, Paul doesn't actually condemn this church for their theology. He doesn't say, you guys have horrible theology. No, he actually comes right alongside of it and affirms it. What he tells them, essentially, is you're not applying it. You need to apply your theology. Here he goes, verses 4 through, four through 7. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know, theologically, an idol has no real existence. And that there's no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us, theologically, we know there is one God and one Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 7. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former associations with idols, eat food as if really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak. Is defiled. He's saying there are some, he calls them weaker, weaker brothers and sisters who have had former associations with idols. Yes, theologically, we know those idols are not real. Paul's essentially saying in verses 5 and 6 here, he's saying they don't objectively exist, right? We know this. But they do exist for those that have given reality to them by believing in them. When they, go, when they went to those temples growing up or before they became a Christian, they ate that food as if that idol was actually real. And because of that, for them now, they probably have a, a greater difficulty with this because their whole lives they've associated going to the temples and eating the food as actually worshiping false gods. So even though 
They aren't actually real. Existentially for these people, they are. Emotionally for them, these, these truths of there is one God and all of these things aren't actually real has not hit them in the same way it's hit you. Again, their response was to say, well, then it needs to hit them. They need to understand this. And Paul's saying, well, how about, how about instead of just applying your theology to yourself, you would also apply it to your brother? What does your theology tell you about how to take those truths and love your brother? You see, they were elevating this knowledge and these freedoms that came from this knowledge as the greatest possible good. So they were telling these weaker brothers, hey, the greatest thing you can have is this freedom in Christ to come and enjoy these things. This is what you need. Experience your rights and your freedoms. These things aren't real. Enjoy together with us. That's the good life. That's being a Christian. Come and enjoy. If that's the highest good of being a Christian is having your rights and freedoms, then they are doing a great job. But if the highest aim is to follow Christ and to be devoted to him, then they're failing. Because in holding up these freedoms and these rights before these people, they're actually encouraging them to devote themselves to something besides Christ. You see, you see the flow here, the logic? We have a tendency to elevate our rights above loving others. We're really good at this as Americans, too. We say, I'll love other people so long as it doesn't impede my freedom. Don't, 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 in, don't inf- infringe on my freedom and my rights in order to help somebody else out. That's been, that's been ingrained into our thinking as Americans. I think that, that freedom is the highest good and the highest aim. And anything that comes against that is evil and wrong. And so we think, well, it's my money, it's my property, it's my words, it's my time, it's my political passions, it's, it's mine, and we don't ever think about how what is mine affects others, because that's their problem. Thankfully, we have a Savior who did not prioritize his rights above loving us. He loved us at great cost to himself. Jesus did not insist on his rights and his privileges to say, Father, I don't need to go. That's their problem. I got my freedoms. They just need to figure out how to be as free as me. No, Jesus laid aside his rights to go lay down his life to build us up, to love us. And because he did that, here's what Paul says that's that's profound in verse 8. Food will not commend us to God which is, again, part of their, their claim, right? Food is inconsequential. It's, it doesn't get us anything with God or take anything away. It's just food. But look what Paul says. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. He's saying, yes, you're right. Food is essentially inconsequential, meaning it's no better off if we have it and we're no better off if we don't. So why are you making that the thing? See, because Christ has come to earth and laid down his rights to save us, 
to give up his life on the cross that we might be saved, because he's done that, we don't have to insist on focusing on our rights, on things like food. He's saying, hey, actually, you're free to give it up. You can, go, you can actually give up all eating meat because almost all meat was sacrificed to idols in this culture, right? So he's saying you could give it all up because you don't need it. If you're in Christ, you have all you need. Christ gave up everything for you. So you don't need this. Lay aside your rights for the building up of the weaker brother. That's the gospel. He's saying us to live out what we see in the gospel. Christ gave up his rights to save us and love us. Now you as his people take your right theology and apply it to your brother. I will lay down my rights and my freedoms for the building up of my brother or sister. Our theology needs to be applied rightly. And when I say theology, I'm not just saying intellectual knowledge needs to be applied. I'm saying this, our knowledge of Christ and his love for us needs to be applied. Unapplied theology is demonic. Satan knows a bunch of right stuff about Jesus. Guess what he doesn't do with that knowledge? Apply it. He hates it. Unapplied theology is Satan's theology. We need to apply the Jesus that we know, what we see in him, his love for us. Take those truths and apply them situationally to our world. Theology that does not drive us to love Christ and to love others is meaningless, period. It doesn't matter. Every once in a while, we'll be driving and uh, my wife will see a, a really expensive car driving very slowly and she gets very upset at this. You know, she'll see like a, you know, $150,000 BMW on the freeway going like 45. And she'll just be like, why did you buy a Beamer? If you're going to drive it 45, why did you buy a $150,000 car? Drive the thing. Our theology has to drive us to love Christ and love neighbor. If it doesn't, what's the point? It's, it, it, it's meaningless. That's what Jesus would say. If you're familiar with the story in Matthew 25 when he talks about the sheep and the goats coming to him. And he, he, and he, says, to, he says to one group, he, he says, when I was sick, you didn't take care of me. When I was hungry, you didn't feed me. When I was in prison, you didn't visit me. And they say, when did we ever see you in this way, Jesus? And then he says to another group and commends them for doing those things and says, whatever you did to the least of these, you did to me. You see, that group that didn't do it was offended because they thought, well, Jesus, if it was you, we would have done it. If we knew it was you, we would have done all of those things. We would have loved you and served you, but we didn't know. And Jesus is like, exactly. That's the point. Your theology didn't drive you to love your neighbor. And so it was incomplete and insufficient. Or in 1 John 4, we see extremely clearly that if you don't love your brother, you don't love the Lord. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So let me ask you, are you helping your brother and sister in Christ 
follow Jesus more? Are you helping them follow Jesus more? We love because Christ loved us in our weakness. Because of that, we love others in their weaknesses, not prioritizing our rights or freedoms above our neighbor. But it keeps going because it's not enough to just know rightly. It's not enough to just know how to apply rightly, but to actually care for our brothers and sisters. So we need orthodoxy, which is right praise, orthopraxy, which is right practice, and we also need orthopathy, which is right passion. See, Paul's trying to wake them up to care about the things that the Lord cares about. Look where he goes in verse 10. If anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And the result, by your knowledge, which you tout as so great and so important, by your knowledge, this weak person is And now he shifts. He no longer calls them weak. Look at what he calls them. The brother for whom Christ died. We're not just talking about theoretical people. We are talking about your brother or your sister whom Christ died. You are destroying them. And that word destroy is the sense that they've now given themselves back over to those idols. And they're gone. Was that worth it? Your obsession with freedom and knowledge as the end goal instead of devotion to Christ? He wants us to be passionate about what Christ is passionate about. And what is Christ passionate about? His people, whom he died for, whom he gave his life for, whom he shed his precious blood to purchase, his sheep, his bride. That is whom Christ cares about. Their obedience, their security, their well-being, their growth and sanctification in Christ, your brother for whom Christ died. This is, this is language of, of, of care and empathy and passion to wake us up, to say, actually invest and care for the spiritual well-being of your brother and sister in Christ. This is where Paul started. Not to say going to temples is wrong because of idolatry, no, but because your brother who is precious to Christ is being destroyed by your example. Care about that. I don't know if you've ever watched a bike, uh, a bike race before, maybe like the Tour de France or something. It's a fascinating watch, even if you care nothing about cycling, because you see these, these bikers who are, who are cycling and they're all so close to each other. They're like inches from each other and they're flying, right? And it's crazy. But every so often there's a crash in a, in, a, in a bicycle race. And often it happens because someone is trying to be a little bit too aggressive, right? There's, there's bike etiquette, cycling etiquette. And, and at times, especially towards the end of a race, racers will get really aggressive. So much so that sometimes they'll bump into each other or they'll make moves that throw somebody off, off course all because they want to win. And when there's a bike crash, it is pure chaos. It's, 
I've never had, it's never happened to me before, so I can say, like, watching videos, sometimes it's, it's slightly comical, because you're like, wow, the amount of people that are crashing here is absurd, right? And I'm sure it's the most terrifying experience as an actual cyclist, but it's chaos. One person falling affects almost the entire race, all because sometimes one racer wants to get a little bit further ahead, be a little bit selfish, and a little bit more aggressive, not mindful of others, and leaves a wreckage of destruction behind them. That's what's happening here. And that's what Paul is saying us to be mindful of. Are you so obsessed with yourself, your freedoms, your rights, your pursuits, your passions, all these sort of things, that you don't care what kind of wreckage you leave behind you? Because there are brothers and sisters whose faith is being destroyed by your selfishness. Friends, this isn't a race. This life is not a race. Church is meant to be a family where we care for one another. We're not, we're not competing for one another, jockeying for position, trying to cross the finish line first. So Paul's saying, you know, participating in idolatry and worship of demons is really, really wicked and evil and dangerous, but you know what's worse? Causing your brother to be entangled in sin and destroyed. Jesus had some really strong words to say about that in Matthew chapter 18. Look what he said. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned into the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it's necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptations come. Worshiping idols is really evil and dangerous, but what's worse is causing your brother to sin and be destroyed. And in this way you sin against Christ. That's what he would say in verse 12. In sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience, you sin against Christ himself. The problem wasn't that the people were offended, right? It wasn't that, well, they just saw what these, what these guys were doing going to the temples and it just bothered them or it offended them or it wasn't their preference and so they were just kind of irked by it. Because we could use that to justify a bunch of stuff and say, well, you can't do that because that offends me. And we're all very easily offended today, Right? It's not the idea of being offended. It's the idea of being destroyed. Of being led away from Christ. We are to have right passions. It's what will help us love each other, but the only way our passions can align with what Christ is passionate about is through the transformation of the gospel. Because I am the brother for whom Christ died. You are the brother or sister for whom Christ died. When we know that that's who we are and that's how Christ loved us, and that's how much he cares for me and helps me see, oh, I can care for my brother and sister because they are the same. They are of equal worth and of equal value to Christ. They are the brother or sister for whom Christ died for as well. I can have right passion for them. And guess what? The more we get to know our brother or sister, the more we can rightfully care for them. See, there really is no perfect one-to-one correlation for this situation into our world. We don't have this. We can kind of come up with maybe some ideas of like what this might look like, but I I intentionally did not want to do that this morning because I don't want to coerce you to love a theoretical person. 
The idea is for us to love the actual people in our body. The only way we can do that is by knowing them. The only way we can have right passion that flows from the gospel into the lives of one another is if we actually know each other's weaknesses, know each other's tendencies and struggles, and the areas of conscience in, in one another that are, that are weak and, and, and more susceptible. By actually knowing each other. So are you invested in the life of your brothers and sisters in this church? Are you invested in their well-being? Do you care when you see your brother and sister walking towards sin? Prioritizing other things over Christ. Do you care when you see them neglecting the gathering or gossiping about other people's business or slandering or being greedy or grumbling and complaining all the time? Do you actually have passionate care to see them turn from those things and follow Christ? So much so that you'd be willing to give up maybe some of your own stuff, some of your own self-focus to care for them. Old church theologian from the fourth century said that, the, talking about the rich, he said that the rich are not owners of their wealth, but instead they are stewards for the poor. All your freedoms in Christ, your new identity, your forgiveness, your spiritual blessings, all of those things are given to you for one of the primary purposes is that you would love your neighbor. Not just that you'd have all these great riches, but that you'd love your brother. At the bottom level, this is a misunderstanding of the gospel. That when we see Jesus in our place and we understand what he's done for us, that he's given up everything for us, to love us, to save us, to build us up, we can love others, even at great cost to ourselves. And we need all three of these things. See, if we don't have, if we don't have orthodoxy, we don't have, we don't have right praise, we just have right practice and right passion, well, the way we love each other is with an empty kind of love because it's not fueled by who God is and what he's done. Some of us are more inclined to do that. Some of us are more, more inclined to just, just leave behind the right practice. Right? We got the, all the right theology, all the right praise of God. We got all the right passion to care for people. But you just are inactive. You just don't do anything. You don't ever apply it. Some of us have right theology. We know how to apply it. But we just don't care. We just don't care about the people around us. We're not invested. We need all three of these things. We need right, right praise, right practice, and right passion, and it all comes from Christ. It all comes from, him, from us seeing him rightly. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, you know our tendencies, you know our sins. That's why you came. You came to lay down your life for us, to save us, that we might be a people that are different, a people that love, love one another, a people that don't just leave the limping sheep behind and say, hurry up, but you've called us to be a people that stick together, to love one another in the midst of our weaknesses, to care about our salvations, to care about our walk with Christ, to be invested in it, and yet, Lord, we cannot do this without you. We need you to regularly fix our eyes on Christ to help us love one another. 
Jesus, we thank you that you came to take care of us. God, I think of the story of, of, of Cain and Abel after Cain murders his brother and, and you come to him and you say, where is your brother? And he responds in all of his sin and pompousness to just say, am I my brother's keeper? As an excuse. And yet, Jesus, you came to earth to say, I will be my brother's keeper. You died for us so that we too might care for one another and say to the brothers and sisters beside us, yes, I will be my brother and sister's keeper as well. I will care about their salvation and their walk with you. Would you help us be a church like this, Jesus? We confess our selfishness to you this morning, our self-focus. Would you help us love one another and build each other up for the glory of Christ? pray this in Jesus' name, amen.